You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Elizabeth Gilbert. This program originally aired in 2011. I just have to ask how many people in this room I went to high school with. I know that some of you are here. Um, Oh, a man came. That's nice. Did you know what the event was when you came? I'm touched. I hope you feel very welcome. (laughs) Outnumbered, but welcome. So to start with a little story, I was at JFK Airport not very long ago, and I don't get recognized that often, but when I do it, it's always in airports. I think people associate airplanes with me for some reason and they put it together these um these two women came over to say hi to me and I don't think they would be offended if I described them as tiny little Italian American broads um like in their 80s like little grandmas little nonnas right with um like tight perms and this is they could have been from Brooklyn but maybe Queens I don't know the accents quite enough to discern but um, they came up to me, and one of them said, the little, tiny, older one, she said, um, honey, I'm sorry, I just got to ask you something. And, uh, and I said, well, go ahead, what? And she said, do you have something to do with this whole eat, pray, love thing? And um, I said, yes, I, I, I do. I have, I have something to do with that, yeah. And she said, you know, I thought so. I looked at you, and I said to my friend, I said, that's that girl. That's that girl who wrote that book based on that movie. That's who I am. So those of you who are familiar with that movie that I wrote that book based on um, know that it ended with with me and my husband, Javier Bardem, uh, sailing sailing into this. I had a meal with him in, in, in Italy, you know. Well, there were like 20 people there, but I, I was one of them. I found it difficult to speak. Um, anyway, me and Javier, Felipe, got, uh, we end up together in this book, this Brazilian gentleman who I met, and, and it, it, the Eat, Pray, Love ends there, but of course our story didn't end there. And Committed picks up where it, uh, where it left off, uh, which is that we're these two people who live on different continents trying to figure out how to have a life together. And we were very much in love and made all sorts of promises and holy commitments to, to stay together faithfully but swore we would never marry under any circumstances because we were both terrified of matrimony for reasons that I'm certain I don't have to explain to anyone who's ever been divorced. Um, and, and we wouldn't do that to each other. Uh, but the Department of Homeland Security had different plans for us. And um, my sweetie was detained and handcuffed and jailed and thrown out of the country at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport one day. And a nice Homeland Security gentleman named Officer Tom kind of told us that we had to get married. It was a shotgun wedding um, with the INS holding the shotgun. And we had to leave the country for 10 months. And and during that time, we traveled through Southeast Asia. And a lot of the book is about my, well, the whole book is about my efforts to try to make peace with the institution of marriage um, and resolve all my fears and questions about it and look at it from every possible angle and talk to everyone I met about it. Because that's how I relax. So I'm going to read you a little scene that takes place in in northern Laos, in the beautiful city of Luang Prabang, Laos. This is a place where we stayed for a few weeks, and and I used to go to the Internet Cafe every day to check on our legal proceedings back home. 
and I would sit next to monks because um, the, the, the town is a, a haven. It's a religious community and it's full of young Buddhist monks and they're always in there playing video games. It's great. Um, so, so this is a scene. Uh, it begins here. So as I was sitting there alone in the internet cafe one hot afternoon in Luang Prabang, staring at my flickering computer screen, a thin teenage novice monk suddenly sat down at a computer next to me, balancing his skinny bottom lightly on the edge of a hard wooden chair. He was so close that I could see the faint hairs on his thin, pale brown arms. Our workstations were so near to each other that I could also see his computer screen quite clearly. After a spell, I glanced over to get a sense of what he was working on, and I realized that the boy was reading a love letter. Actually, he was reading a love email, which I quickly gleaned was from somebody named Carla, who was not Loatian and who wrote in comfortable colloquial English, so she was American maybe, or British or Australian. One sentence on the boy's computer screen popped out at me. I still long for you as my lover which snapped me from my reverie. Dear God, what was I doing reading someone's private correspondence? A monk's, no less. And over his shoulder, I pulled my eyes away, ashamed of myself. This was none of my business. I returned my attention to my listings on the computer, though naturally I found it a tad difficult to focus on my tasks anymore because, come on, who the hell is Carla? <laughs> and how had a young Western woman and a teenage Loatian monk met in the first place? How old was she? And when she wrote, I still long for you as my lover, had she meant I want you hypothetically as my lover, or had this relationship consummated itself, and was she now cherishing a memory of shared physical passion? If Carla and the monk had consummated their love affair, how, when, at the monastery? And what would become of them now? Was this boy gonna give up his vows and move to Australia, or Britain, or Canada, or Memphis? Would Carla relocate to Laos? Would they ever see each other again? Would he be defrocked? Is that what you even call it in Buddhism? Was this love affair gonna ruin his life, or hers, or both? The boy stared at his computer screen in rapt silence, studying his love letter with such concentration that he had no awareness whatsoever of me sitting beside him, worrying silently about his future. <laughs> the monk did not type out a response to Carla, or at least not that afternoon. He read the letter a few more times, as carefully as though he were studying religious text. Then he sat for a long while in silence, hands resting lightly on his lap, eyes closed as though in meditation. Finally, he took action. He printed out the email. He read Carla's words once more, this time on paper. He folded the note with tenderness as though he were folding an origami crane and tucked it away somewhere inside his orange robes. And then this beautiful, almost child of a young man disconnected from the internet and walked out into the cafe of the cafe into the searing heat of this ancient river town. I stood up after a moment and followed him outside unnoticed. I watched as he walked up the street, moving slowly in the direction of the central temple on the hill. Soon enough, a young group of monks came walking by, gradually overtaking him, and Carla's monk quietly joined their ranks, disappearing into the crowd of slim young novices, like an orange fish vanishing into a school of its duplicate brothers. I immediately lost track of him. But clearly, these boys, though they looked all the same, were not all the same. Only one of those young Loatian monks had a love letter from a woman named Carla, folded and hidden somewhere in his robes. And as crazy as the whole thing seemed, and as dangerous a game as he was playing here, I could not help but feel a little excited for the kid. Whatever the outcome, something was happening to him. The Buddha taught that all human suffering is rooted in desire, and don't we all know this to be true? Any of us who have ever desired something and then didn't get it, or worse, got it and subsequently lost it, know full well the suffering of which the Buddha spoke. Desiring another person is perhaps the most risky endeavor of all. 
As soon as you want somebody, really want him, it is as though you have taken a surgical needle and sutured your happiness to the skin of that person so that any separation will now cause you a lacerating injury. All you know is that you must obtain the object of your desire by any means necessary and then never be parted. All you can think about is your beloved. Lost in such primal urgency, you no longer completely own yourself. You have become an indentured servant to your longings. The problem is we are all full of desire. It's the hallmark of our emotional existence, and it can lead to our downfall and to the downfall of others. In the most famous treatise on desire ever written, the Symposium, Plato describes a famous dinner party during which the playwright Aristophanes lays out the mythical story of why we humans have such a deep longing for union with each other and why these acts of union can sometimes be so unsatisfying and even destructive. Once upon a time, Aristophanes relates, there were gods in the heavens and humans down on earth, but we humans did not look the way we did today. Instead, we each had two heads and four legs and four arms, a perfect melding, in other words, of two people joined together, seamlessly united into one being. We came in three different possible gender and sexual variations, male-female meldings, male-male meldings, and female-female meldings, depending on what suited each creature the best. Since we each had the perfect partner sewn into the very fabric of our being, we were all happy. Thus, all of us double-headed, eight-limbed, perfectly contented creatures moved across the earth the same way the planets travel through the heavens, dreamily, orderly, smoothly, lacking for nothing. We had no unmet needs. We wanted for nothing. There was no strife, no chaos. We were whole. But in our wholeness, we became overly proud. In our pride, we neglected to worship the gods, and the mighty Zeus punished us for our neglect by cutting all the double-headed, eight-limbed, perfectly contented humans in half, thereby creating a world of cruelly severed, one-headed, two-armed, two-legged, miserable creatures. In this moment of mass amputation, Zeus inflicted on mankind that most painful and universal of human conditions, the dull and constant sense that we are not quite whole. For the rest of time, humans would be born sensing that there was some missing part, a lost half, which we love almost more than we love ourselves, and that this missing part was out there someplace, spinning through the universe in the form of another being. We would also be born believing that if we only searched relentlessly enough, we would someday find that vanished half, that other soul. This is the singular fantasy of human intimacy, that one plus one will somehow, someday, equal one. But Aristophanes warned that this dream of completion through love is impossible. We're too broken as a species to ever entirely mend ourselves through simple union. So the loneliness continues, which causes us to mate with the wrong people over and over again, seeking perfected union. We may even believe at times that we have found our other half, but it is more likely that all we have found is somebody else who is searching for his other half, somebody who is equally desperate to believe that he has found that completion in us. This is how infatuation begins. And infatuation is the most perilous aspect of human desire, leading to what psychologists call intrusive thinking, that famously distracted state in which you cannot concentrate on anything other than the object of your obsession. Once infatuation strikes all else, jobs, relationships, responsibilities, food, sleep, work, it all falls to the wayside as you nurse fantasies about your dearest one that quickly become repetitive, invasive, and all-consuming. Infatuation, we now know, alters your very brain chemistry, as though you were dousing yourself with opiates and stimulants. The brain scans and mood swings of an infatuated lover, scientists have recently discovered, look identical to the brain scans and mood swings of a cocaine addict. And not surprisingly, as it turns out, because infatuation is an addiction with measurable chemical effects on the brain. 
Research has also shown that people are most susceptible to the drug of infatuation when they are going through delicate or vulnerable times in their lives. The more unsettled and unbalanced we feel, the more quickly and recklessly we are likely to fall in love. This makes infatuation start to sound like a dormant virus, lying in wait, ever ready, ready to attack our weakened emotional immune system. College students, for instance, away from home for the first time, uncertain, lacking in familiar support networks, are notoriously susceptible to infatuation. And we all know that foreign travelers in foreign lands often file wide, fall wildly in love, overnight, it seems, with total strangers. In the flux and thrill of travel, our protective mechanisms break down. This is marvelous in some ways. For the rest of my life, I will always feel a shiver of pleasure when I remember kissing that guy outside the bus terminal in Madrid. It wasn't Javier Bardem. Um, <laughs> but it is wise in such circumstances to heed the advice of the venerable philosopher Pamela Anderson, who said, <laughs> never get married on vacation. <laughs> Anybody going through a difficult time emotionally due to the death of a family member or the loss of a job is also susceptible to unstable love. The sick, the wounded, and the frightened are famously vulnerable to sudden love too, which explains why so many battle-torn soldiers marry their nurses. Spouses with relationships in crisis are also prime candidates for infatuation with a new lover. As I can personally attest, from the mad commotion that surrounded the end of my own first marriage, when I had the good, solid judgment to go out in the world and fall quite insanely in love with the next man I saw as I was leaving my husband, my great unhappiness and my shredded sense of self made me ripe for the plucking of infatuation, and boy, did I get plucked. Shocking how that didn't work out. The problem with infatuation, of course, is that it's a mirage, a trick of the eye, indeed a trick of the endocrine system. Infatuation is not quite the same thing as love. It's love's shady second cousin who's always borrowing money and can never seem to hold down a job. <laughs> when you become infatuated with somebody, you're not really looking at that person. You're captivated by your own reflection, intoxicated by a dream of completion that you have projected on a virtual stranger. We tend in such a state to decide all sorts of spectacular things about our lovers that may or may not have any basis in reality. We perceive something almost divine in our beloved, even if our friends and family can't see it. One man's Venus is another guy's bimbo, after all, and somebody else might easily consider your personal Adonis to be a flat-out greasy little loser. Of course, all lovers do and should see their partners through generous eyes. It's natural, even appropriate, to exaggerate somewhat our partner's virtues. Carl Jung suggested that the first six months of most love stories is a period of pure projection for just about everybody. But infatuation is projection run off the rails. An infatuation-based affair is a sanity-free zone where misconception has no limits and where perspective can find no foothold. Any actually relating is impossible in such a state of pitched fever. Real, healthy, mature love is not based on infatuation but on affection and respect. And the word respect, from the Latin respicere, to look at, suggests that you can actually see the person who is standing next to you, something you absolutely cannot do from within the swirling mists of romantic delusion. Reality exits the stage the moment infatuation enters, and we might soon find ourselves doing all sorts of crazy things that we would never have considered doing in a sane state. For instance, we might find ourselves sitting down one day to write a passionate email to a 16-year-old monk in Laos, or whatever, and when the dust has settled years later, we might ask ourselves, what was I thinking? And the answer is usually, you weren't. <laughs> Psychologists call that state of deluded madness narcissistic love. I call it my 20s. 
Listen, I want to make it clear I'm not intrinsically against passion. No, mercy, no. The single most exhilarating sensations I've ever experienced in my life happened when I was consumed by romantic obsession. As painfully as those experiences may have turned out in the end, and they did always turn out painfully for me, I would hate to see somebody go through an entire lifetime never knowing what it feels like to morph euphorically into another person's being. So when I say that I'm sort of excited for the monk and Carla, that's what I'm talking about. I'm glad they have the opportunity to taste that narcotic bliss, but I'm also really, really glad it's not me. Because here is something I know for certain about myself as I approach the age of 40, I can no longer do infatuation. It kills me. It puts me through the wood chipper. While I know there must be some couples out there whose love stories began with a bonfire of obsession and then mellowed safely over the years into the embers of a long, healthy relationship, I have never learned that trick. For me, infatuation has only ever done one thing. It destroys and fast. But I loved the high of infatuation in my youth, and so I made a habit of it. By habit here, I mean exactly the same thing that any heroin addict means when he speaks of his habit, a mild word for an unmanageable compulsion. I sought passion everywhere. I freebased it. I became the kind of girl whom Grace Paley was surely thinking about when she described a character who always needed a man in her life, even when it might have appeared that she already had one. Falling in love at first sight became a particular specialty of mine in my late teens and early 20s. I could do it upwards of four times a year. There were occasions when I made myself so sick over romance that I lost whole chunks of my life to it, losing so much sleep and so much sanity that parts of the process start to look in retrospect like an alcoholic blackout, except without the alcohol. Should such a young lady have gotten engaged at the age of 23? Wisdom and prudence might have suggested not, but I did not invite wisdom or prudence to my first wedding. In my defense, nor were they guests of the groom. I was a careless girl back then in every possible way. I once read a newspaper article about a man who caused thousands of acres of forest to burn down because he drove all day through a national park with his muffler dragging, causing explosive sparks to leap into the dry underbrush and set a new fire every few hundred feet. Other motorists along the way kept honking and waving and trying to alert the guy's attention to the damage he was doing, but he was so happily listening to his radio that he didn't notice the catastrophe he had set in motion. That was me in my youth. <laughs> only when I reached my early 30s, once my only, only once my ex-husband and I had wrecked our marriage for good, only once my life had been utterly disrupted, as well as the lives of a few nice men, a few not nice men, a handful of innocent bystanders and such, did I finally stop the car. I got out, looked around at the charred landscape, blinked a bit, and said, you don't mean to suggest that any of this mess might have something to do with me. <laughs> then came the depression. The Quaker teacher Parker Palmer said once of his own life that depression was a friend sent to save him from the exaggerated elevations of false euphoria he had been manufacturing forever. Depression pushed him down to earth, he said, back down to a level where it might finally be safe for him to walk and stand in reality. I too needed to be hauled down to the real after years spent artificially hoisting myself aloft with one thoughtless passion after another. I've come to see my season as depres of depression too as having been essential, if sorrowful. I used that time alone to study myself, to truthfully answer painful questions, and with the help of a patient therapist to work out the origins of my more destructive behaviors. I diligently pursued healthier forms of joy. I spent a lot of time alone. I'd never been alone before, but I mapped my way through it. I learned how to pray, atoning as best I could for the wasteland behind me. Most of all, though, I practiced the novel art of self-comfort, resisting all fleeting romantic and sexual temptations with this newly adult question, will this choice be beneficial to anybody even a week from now? 
In short, I grew up. Immanuel Kant believed that we humans, because we are so emotionally complex, go through two puberties in life. The first is when our bodies become mature enough for sex. The second is when our minds become mature enough for sex. And the two events are often separated by many, many years. Though I do wonder if perhaps our emotional maturity comes to us only through the experience and lessons and disasters of our youthful romantic failures. To ask a 20-year-old girl to automatically somehow know things about life that most 40-year-old women needed decades to understand is expecting an awful lot of wisdom from a very young person. Maybe we must all go through the anguish and errors of a first puberty, in other words, before any of us can ascend to the second one. Anyway, long into my experiment with solitude and self-accountability, I met Felipe. He was kind and loyal and attentive, and we took it slow. This was not teen love, nor was it puppy love or last day of summer camp love. On the surface, I will admit our love story did seem awfully romantic as it was unfolding. For pity's sake, we met in Bali, under the swaying palm trees, etc., etc. One can hardly summon a more idyllic setting. At the time, I remember describing this whole dreamy scene in an email that I sent to my older sister back in the suburbs of Philadelphia. In retrospect, that was probably unfair of me. Catherine, at home with two little kids facing down a massive house renovation, replied only, yeah, I was planning to go to a tropical island this weekend with my Brazilian lover too. <laughs> but then there was all that traffic. So yes, my love affair with Felipe had a wonderful element of romance to it, which I will always cherish, but it was not infatuation, and here's how I can tell. Because I did not demand that he become my great emancipator or my source of all holy life, nor did I immediately vanish into that man's chest cavity like a twisted, unrecognizable, parasitic homunculus. <laughs> During our long period of courtship, I remained intact within my own personality, and I allowed myself to meet Felipe for who he was. In each other's eyes, we may very well have seemed beautiful and perfect and heroic beyond measure, but I never lost sight of our actual realities. I was a loving but haggard divorced lady who needed to carefully manage her tendency toward melodramatic romance and unreasonable expectation. Felipe was an affectionate and balding divorce guy who needed to carefully manage his drinking and his deep-seated fear of betrayal. We were two nice enough people bearing the wounds of some very average, massive personal disappointments, and we were looking for something that might simply be possible in each other, a certain kindness, a certain attentiveness, a certain shared yearning to trust and to be trusted. To this day, I refuse to burden Felipe with the tremendous responsibility of somehow completing me. By this point in my life, I have figured out that he cannot complete me, even if he wanted to. I faced enough of my own incompletions to recognize that they belong solely in my hands. Having learned this essential truth, I can actually tell now where I end and where somebody else begins. That might sound like an embarrassingly simple trick, but I do need to make clear that it took me over three and a half decades to get to that point, to learn the limitations of sane human intimacy, as nicely defined by C.S. Lewis when he wrote of his wife, we both knew this, I had my miseries, not hers, she had hers, not mine. One plus one, in other words, is sometimes actually supposed to equal two. Thank you. You know, I went back and read your books um, in preparation for this and watched your TED Talk on YouTube. But I'm going to begin with a question that everybody really wants to know, which is, were you happy with the choice of Julia Roberts <laughs> playing you in Eat, Pray, Love? Do you know this friend of mine said the other day, I, you know, I couldn't see it, and then I saw the movie and kind of 
by the end of it, I thought she was sort of looking like you. And I, and I said, no, we want me to look like her. <laughs> it's the wrong way. We don't want her. Um, I, I, I was delighted with it. And I mean, it, it's hard to even know how to answer that question because it makes you sound like, yes, I thought that was perfect casting for <laughs> Julia Roberts to be. It's like the biggest upgrade from coach to first class that you could ever imagine. Um, but she, she's lovely and she is the reason that that movie happened. She, she has the power to make things like that occur and she made it occur. You know, when you were talking about Officer Tom and his colleagues at Homeland Security, I just thought... The, by, by, if you, by you and Felipe community. had been separated, that would have been a disaster for seven million. You know, he was, Officer Tom had no idea. He was very sweet, um, Felipe. At the beginning of the relationship, he he said after the book came out, he said, "You know, you got to stay with me at least till it's out in paperback, or people are going to be really upset." <laughs> and then he he keeps adding, he's like, "Yeah, stay with me till the movie's out, because otherwise it's not going to look good." And it's you know, now I've managed to convince him that I think well, I'm just going to stick around, keep the franchise rolling. <laughs> so many people are watching your relationship. So many people were curious about what was going to happen next. I wonder how you as a writer could pull yourself away from, you know, to a safe enough distance to write unselfconsciously about your relationship. It was tricky and the first draft of Committed was is a 500 page um, disaster that's under my bed in a box and the reason that it was a disaster is because I couldn't figure out how to do that. Mm. And um, I mean I think there's so many ways in which I'm lucky about when Eat, Pray, Love happened, that, that that sort of success happened on my fourth book, not my first, because I think it would be really debilitating then, um, because you would just think you could never possibly write again. You know, um, it, it happened when I was closer to 40 than 20, or else I would have been getting out of limousines with no underwear without a doubt um, <laughs> if I had gotten famous at that age. And, you know, timing was good, but it was still hard, and I'm... You know, I'm a pleaser. I like to make people happy. And I was faced with this question of how do you make millions of readers happy? And, and I tried to write a book that would, and it was so pandery and vacant, uh, the first draft of it. And it wasn't until I narrowed down my circle of who I was writing to, to a handful of the women who I've known my whole life, who I'm closest to, the women who I sit and drink wine with and talk about this stuff with. And I just blocked out everybody else. And I wrote the book for them with the hope that other people are also having these conversations and there'll be something familiar and intimate in it for others as well. Yeah. Well, a listener asked, has writing about the relationship so much changed the relationship? I would say for the better in, in terms of committed. I mean, the, the, the Because other, he's being watched? Uh, <laughs> those Brazilians. <laughs> um, no, I think... Actually, he's not being watched because he's such a private person and even the changing of his name has been another layer of privacy and I feel like he's this ballast in our relationship and, and hasn't sought any sort of spotlight around this and um, you know, didn't go on Oprah and didn't go even to the movie premiere is so supportive and so loving but just wisely um, said, I think it's, it's best if, if one of us just holds the normal life safe um, and you go out and do that and then come home and um, so but, but actually this book I think helped our marriage a lot because I, I shudder to think that I would have entered it without doing this much thinking and there's no way I would have done this much thinking without having written about it and we kind of you know, I read it to him as I was going. All the research that I was doing, I filtered through him and with him. And, and it's really the story of our collective attempt to make sense of this. And in this regard, I don't think there's anything particularly special about us. I think we're a pretty representative couple um, going into a second relationship after the failures of the first. So I think it's more like we're the avatars for everybody's questions. But also an incredibly self-aware couple from the, from the sounds of it. I mean, you say, even for you and Felipe, I recognize that there is always the possibility of another divorce because I love Felipe. 
Yeah. So you can choose, you can unchoose. Tell us a little bit about the cost of choice. This is something that I think is probably the most fascinating thing I learned when I was studying the history of marriage, that um, when you make love the currency of marriage, divorce rates immediately skyrocket. When marriage is a business contract, people stick it out because their expectation is business deal, you know, and we can all deal with like colleagues that we don't like working with, but we can work alongside with them if that was always the, the idea. But in every society across human history, whenever you have taken a conservative traditional society of arranged marriage and replaced it with a modern liberal Western society of romantic marriage, the divorce rates just hit the roof and it's happening right now in India as you watch and people are always on hand to say, ah, people don't know how to stick it out anymore. But the reality of it is that when the, when the contract is based on love and when love dies, you cannot live with someone anymore. And, and judges recognize this and the laws will start to change and, and people will start to discuss the, the cruelty of making two people stay together who once loved each other and don't anymore. And I feel like divorce is the tax we pay for believing in love or for believing that love should be linked to marriage. And it's a, it's a risk I'm willing to take, but I am so much more respectful now of what's at stake, um, which is a broken heart and, and there's nothing more devastating than that. Well, you do, as you said, your research. You asked everybody. You went to these group of Hmong grandmothers in uh, Vietnam, I think it was. Uh -huh. And these women, love for them was where marriage ended up rather than where it began, I think is the way you put it. They didn't expect abundant happiness. Do we have too much of an expectation that that love and marriage will provide us with this kind of happiness? And is that too much to ask? Well, it's such a, f it's, it's, again, it's hard. In the book I say, I don't even know what to do with this information because I never want to become, me of all people, I never want to become a, you know, an advocate of everybody's got to lower their standards, you know, um, or lower their expectations for their own happiness in life. Like that's not ever going to be, you know, the way I feel or the way um, that I want to, portray the world. Um, but I now see, having traveled around the world and talked to other people about their unions, that I am so profoundly American in that, it's insane. You know, like you could do like a DNA test on my feelings about marriage and identify exactly when and where I was born. You know, like I am, it's like you can see the rings on the tree. Like I came from a an educated, you know, liberal post-feminist society and I have these huge expectations. And um, I don't know if they need to be lowered, but I think they need to be managed, and they certainly need to be expected. And Americans, more than anyone else in the world, have overburdened the expectations of what they think somebody should provide for them. It's not enough to find a partner who's good and decent and loyal. You also want somebody who's going to be the best sexual partner you've ever had in your whole life, who's going to inspire you intellectually, who's going to share all your same spiritual faith and believings, who's going to want the same things out of family and life as you. I mean, just a perfect match on every level. And we live in a society where we're used to kind of getting what we want. We want it in blue and we want it tomorrow and we want three of them you know and um and and it doesn't necessarily cross apply and i think while i have no nostalgia for arranged marriage and i have no nostalgia for the patriarchy i do think there is something interesting about the idea that other people have different ideas about this and they approach sometimes marriage as an as a notion that you find somebody who shares your basic values and then love is not something that you discover, it's something that you create together, it's something that you build slowly over time, and that you might end up at the end of your life a lot closer than you were at the beginning. Mm. Part of your research was also within your own family, speaking to your mother and your grandmother, Maud. Please tell us a little bit about her. She just sounds fabulous. Oh, I'm lucky enough to have a 96-year-old grandmother who is lucid and brilliant, and I went and talked to her about marriage. I, I feel like 
it was important for me to really go 3D on this, to kind of go three generations deep, and I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to do that in my family. And um, it was mind-blowing and eye-opening to, to get her to open up about her life. My grandmother was born in Minnesota during the Depression, and she was born in a blizzard, and she had a severe cleft palate deformation, and the family wasn't able to dig out and get her to surgery for, I think it was six months, mm. that they fed her through a tube um, on this farm in 1916 and kept her alive. And she had this deformity, and she had this speech impediment, and you know, right in the middle of the face, a great deal of scarring, and so she was incredibly insecure and had been told her whole life that she would never marry. And in that sort of insensitivity that people used to have, like, ah, yeah, she's the one who'll never marry. And the benefit of that is that she was allowed to become educated. And she was the only one in her family who finished high school while all her cousins and sisters were married at 16 and, and pregnant at 16 and a half. Um, she got an education, she had a job, she had autonomy, she had her own place that she lived in in her early 20s, and she had money and savings. And the story that she always told me was about this coat that she had that she bought with her savings that was this wine-colored coat with a fur collar that she bought for like $7 or some astronomical amount of money. And it was the most beautiful thing she ever owned. And ultimately, she did end up getting married. She married my grandfather, who was a very rough farmer, and he took her out of town and put her back on an impoverished farm, and she had eight kids and was never, like, never had anything again the rest of her life until basically 1978. And, um, but she told me that when her first daughter was born, they had nothing for her, and so she cut up her coat and made a Christmas outfit for her daughter out of it, which is, on one hand, so inspirationally loving, and on the other hand, exactly the story of what so many women in my family and so many other people's families have done with their dreams of themselves is that you, you know, you have it for a while and then you cut it up and, and sew it into something and give it away to the people who you're taking care of. And um, it was interesting too when I asked her what the happiest time in her life was. I thought she would say those single years when she was making money and living on her own, but she said those early years of marriage on the farm where they had nothing. And I said, why? And she said, because I never dreamed that anyone would marry me. And I was so happy and I was so fulfilled. And then right after that, she said to me, but now that you've met this nice man, you're not going to get married and have kids and stop writing books, are you? <laughs> so there's this message of, you know, this intergenerational, like, I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of how I took care of these people. Don't do it, you know? Um, don't cut up your wine-colored coat for anybody is kind of what she was telling me. But it seems like the narrative that we get is still a very sort of bifurcated sense. Like, just as her happiness inside of that marriage was very true for her, and she also didn't want you to give away your life, it seems to me the predominant story is, well, you can either choose a family or you can choose your career. Yeah, well, we're adults here, right? There are contradictions and paradoxes. <laughs> you know, and it's, a, and it's a complicated story. And, and I think, you know, at my point in my life... I've come to recognize that I can't do everything in one lifetime. And there's a sort of triage almost where I've had to choose what my essence is and, and what is the priority for me. And the other things, you know, that's where I start to get really kind of karmic and Hindu-y thinking just because it's convenient at that moment. And I think, I'll do it next time. <laughs> you know, like everything I don't get done this time, I'll, do, I'll pick it up on the next round, you know. Um, uh, and and I think, you know, Martha Beck, that wonderful writer who writes a lot in Oprah Magazine, said that she felt like 
of all the women she knows that she's met, they fall into four categories. There are those who chose career over family and who feel conflicted about it. There are those who chose family over career and who feel conflicted about it. There are those who chose family and career and who feel really conflicted about it. <laughs> and there are the mystics. And she defines the mystics as a woman who could be in any one of those categories but has somehow followed some deeply honest inner voice, has let go of what she can't do, and selected what she's here for, and has drowned out all the sort of buzzing chaos about everything that you're supposed to be, and is um, on her own path. And I would submit that it's tricky to live in a time where we all have to become mystics in order to be happy, but it is sort of the moment where we live. Which one are you? Um, well, I'm definitely not family over career. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I've, I've worked at, I'm a mystic. You're a mystic. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just put it she out there. She just earned it. You know, I'm a holy, holy being. <laughs> well, and I never have any doubts or second guesses about anything I've ever done in my we life. We can see that. Do you still meditate? Are there any other questions after that one? <laughs> I love how you follow that up. I love, you know, it's I, people. I love people when they say to I me, "I was setting like, you up." I so admire. It is. It was a <laughs> trap. I, people say, "I so admire how you you keep your spiritual balance." I'm like, "What the hell makes you think I'm keeping my spiritual balance?" Um, no, I meditate uh, every day at four in the morning, um, and then I do a couple hours of yoga, and then I go for a six seven mile run, and. Um, <laughs> And then I spend the rest of my day doing my many, many charitable <laughs> outreach. You right. should all be doing that too. Um, I, I do and don't. It comes and goes. I have a lot of I have a lot of trouble sticking with it. I have to be honest. And and as you know, if you ready, pray, love, it wasn't easy for me even when I was in an ashram where that's all you're supposed to be doing. And now I live in New Jersey. It's even harder. And. Uh, it, you know, but it's, I know that it's the best possible thing I could do for myself, which is probably why I don't do it. Um, but I do. I, come, I have waves of it, and then I lose it, and I waves and come back. But you know, Pema Chodron said so wonderfully about why meditation is so hard and what the misunderstanding is about it. She said, you know, we all fall into meditation because we, we have this idea that it's going to still our minds, and then we're going to be contented. And she said, it's such a misunderstanding. This is this Tibetan Buddhist monk. And, and she said... You know, the, the thing is that the mind is like this pond that's covered with these choppy waves, which are all your thoughts. And, and what happens when you start meditating is that, indeed, those thoughts do quiet and the waves settle. And then you can see down in the bottom of the pond all the toxic waste dump in your mind, the skeletons, the corpses, the the sunken cars, the garbage, you know, and, and it's horrifying. And, um, and, and, and then you have to learn how to make peace with that, which is the hard part, but it's not necessarily fun all the time. And that's why I choose to sleep in and read magazines. <laughs> there are a lot of people asking for advice, but this oh. one is the most touching. Oh, We're getting married Wednesday. What advice can you give us? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Enjoy each other. You know, I mean, I, I am so unequipped to give marital... It's like Dick Cheney giving diplomatic advice. You know, it's just not... It's so above my pay grade. Um, you know, all I, all I can say is that you probably think you have a 50-50 chance of divorce because you've heard that horrible statistic. And I just want to say something that I found very reassuring, which is that those numbers are very skewed by age. And... Um, 
dear reader, if you are not under the age of 24, you are probably going to stay married to that person forever. Um, the reason we have such high divorce rates in this country is because people get married too young. And, uh, and then it doesn't work out. Who would have thought? So um, if you are under the age of 24, you'll be, of course, one of those very small percentage of people who stays happily married forever. <laughs> and um, I wish you many, many blessings. Well, just as people may have been emboldened to leave bad marriages after reading Eat, Pray, Love, have you heard from people who've decided to jump the broom after uh, reading <laughs> Commit? Um, I haven't. That's alarming. Um, <laughs> no, what I, have, what I have found is that, you know, when... <laughs> what I, <laughs> maybe they're just too scared. I, um, I liked one thing that, that my British publisher said when she read the manuscript and it circulated around her office, and she said... Everyone here who's in their early 20s is so terrified of marriage now after reading your book. And everyone who's in their 30s, 40s, and 50s is so encouraged. Mm -hmm. And I thought, good. You know, if my book has done nothing other than to scare young people and give hope to old people, I'm so glad. <laughs> because there is really hopeful. I mean, that's where all the good stuff happens is when you're older. So, um, so uh, what was the question? <laughs> I don't even remember. What was the question? <laughs> have people decided to get oh, married? Um, uh, I haven't heard that, but I have heard people giving the book to people who are getting married mm -hmm. um, and, and passing it around and giving it to people who have recently been divorced um, or who are uh, wondering about these same questions that I wonder about because it turns out that all my personal demons are, in fact, completely universal. Um, nothing original in what I wonder. <laughs> well, people did assimilate the stories as if it were their own. I mean, there are some Eat, Pray, Love tours now. And I, you may know in there are, Bali... There's a fragrance, too. There's, <laughs> is there? There is. Wow, that makes me very curious. It's, Do you like three, it? It's actually... Well... Which one? Because there's eat, the eat pray, pray, and, and love. love. Yeah. Oh, what does eat smell like? Pasta Calzone. <laughs> I don't know. Um. <laughs> love smells really good. Um, there, uh, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. There's, for, there's tours, you were saying. Well, I, and there's also a movement among locals in Bali called Eat, Pray, Leave. I'm just oh wondering. Oh my God! It's, I'm sorry to. Actually, you know what? I, I hate to correct you, but I, I did hear that, and it's even funnier than that. It's eat, pay, leave. Oh, good. It's all the restaurants. That's have it even up better. There, which I think is kind well, of. Well, what are some of the um, unintended consequences of this? Book? Um, you mean in terms of well, like, you know, like a, destroying Balinese culture and stuff like that? Yeah, you know. I can't take you know, that on. I'm not taking that on. No, I'm not taking that on. No, but I mean on. that um, you know, people want your experience, and and I'm just wondering for you. You know, as a writer, as a person, um, they're placing you in a very powerful position. And I just wonder how that feels for you. It's, it's a position I won't take on. I think that's, that's probably what the... If there's a tension in that dynamic, it's that I just won't be that. Um, you know, that's why I don't have a TV show or a blog, and I don't tweet. I can't even say tweet without being embarrassed. Um, I... You know, I... Um, I accidentally, you know, when I said something before about my, my struggle being similar to everybody else's, mm -hmm. you know, I wrote this book because I absolutely had to write my way through something that was the most anguishing experience of my life. And all through it, I thought, I am alone with this. I am the only person who worries about these things, thinks about these things, wants these things, fears these things. And no offense to me, but it turns out like 10 million other people feel exactly the same way. And, and those people needed that book, and they have taken it on, and they are welcome to it. It doesn't belong to me anymore. I don't feel any sense of connection 
They can make fragrances and tours out of it if they want. Um, they can be mad at it. They can do whatever they want with it. Um, it it doesn't have a lot to do with me, though, at this point, if that makes sense it, in any way. Do people think they know you? Well, they kind of do if they read these two books. They have reason to think that they do. I mean, with Eat, Pray, Love, they know me from eight years ago, which is a very different person from who I am now. But they don't know anything that I didn't reveal with a lot of care. You know, I, I think people have said to me, don't you feel like it was overexposing? But by contemporary American standards, I'm, I'm essentially a hermit. You know, I'm not out there in, in the world. I'm out there in these two books that I wrote over the course of nine years where each word was very carefully chosen and, um, and very carefully edited and very carefully polished. And there was nothing sort of barfingly reflexive about it, right? It was really, um, you know, in the same way that all my, my books have been very carefully presented objects. Um, and I feel comfortable, I wouldn't put anything in there if, if, if it was anything I didn't want somebody to know about me. And I'm also not a very private person. Well, I... I well, wonder I what now, your, your resistance was to yeah. having a public ceremony. Well, initially you got over your resistance to marry and um, decided to have a ceremony with a few friends. And I just wondered what that resistance was about since you'd shared so much of your relationship with so many people. About the public ceremony? Yeah. Um, I think it was embarrassment, to be perfectly honest. It's embarrassing to stand in front of people who watched you once before swear that you would forever stay with somebody. You know, you start to just, you start to, it's just awkward, you know? Um, and, and, you know, you, you just have this feeling that behind you they're like rolling their eyes. And um, Miss Manners had a great thing that she said once to a, a writer who, who wrote in and said, my, my niece is getting married for the second time in two years. Am I obliged to send her a gift? And Miss Manners said, you're not obliged to send her a gift. You can just write her a nice note congratulating her and being and wishing her a great deal of luck and being very careful to avoid using the words this time. <laughs> you know, um, because there is that sense of like, oh God, I can't believe we're here again. Um, but I but I did have a small ceremony with our close family and friends, mostly so that my niece, Mimi, who was nine at the time, would take the word uncle for my husband out of air quotes and take and, and actually recognize <laughs> that it was a legitimate relationship. You know, kids are such hall monitors and she never <laughs> liked the fact that we were living together and not married. It freaked her out. She wanted to see that settled. So it was really mostly for Mimi um, and for Officer Tom at the Homeland Security <laughs> Department. So we read your anguish about this and your ambivalence and then you did decide to get married and you kind of vow to have a, a wifeless marriage, you know, that no one's gonna have to play the wife in this marriage. Mm -hmm. So how's it going? Your wifeless, <laughs> slowed down marriage. It's, it's going really well. And I think that the really, literally the day after our wedding, I woke up and I was sort of patting myself down like someone who just survived a firing squad. Honestly, I was like, am I still, this is okay. Oh, all my limbs, you know, and, and it turned out that, you know, there's a, there's a lovely psychological theory that says the thing that we are most afraid of is the thing that already happened. Um, and, and, and I realized that so much of my fear about getting married was just reliving the trauma of having been divorced. And once I settled in with this person, um, it's been very, very, very lovely and, and, and nice and we're kind to each other. And, um, and he cooks dinner and cleans up while he's cooking. What am I gonna say? He's wonderful. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Elizabeth Gilbert. Thank you.